Ezekiel chapter 20 is where you're going in your Bibles. We are nearing the end of the 20th chapter of Ezekiel. And uh, well, before I say any more, why don't we uh, read our passage for this morning? We left off last Sunday at the end of verse 38, and so we will resume at verse 39. We're going to go to verse 44. Excuse me. As for you, O house of Israel, O house of Israel in exile, thus says the Lord God, go serve every one of you his idols. Now and hereafter, if you will not listen to me, but my holy name you shall no more profane with your gifts and your idols. For on my holy mountain, the mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them. There I will require your contributions and the choices of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. And as a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples, gather you out of the countries where you've been scattered. And I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give to your fathers, there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds which you ha- with which you have defiled yourselves, and you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils you've committed. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. This is God's word, and so again we say, thanks be to God. You've probably noticed as we've been going through the book of Ezekiel, well, two things. One, if, if, you, if you were to look over a, a kind of outline of the whole book, basically it moves from judgment to, uh, to glory, from judgment to, to mercy and redemption. Right? And so that it, it's why, uh, the, I mean, and it's not really a 50-50 split, it's more like a 60-40 or maybe even, even more unbalanced than that. But, uh, but broadly speaking... We've had a lot of texts about Israel's sin, particularly their idolatry, and the judgment that they are suffering because they are seeking to worship God while kind of carrying their idols underneath the blankets, if you'd like. Uh, mixing the, the uh, worship of idols with the worship of God. Mixing the things that their hearts actually love while pretending to love God. And what we've seen a couple of times so far is that it's not exactly a straight line of like judgment, 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 and then, you know, so, so put off all hope of hearing any gospel until we get toward near the end of the book. It's, it's more like it moves in cycles. So, so yes, the arc that we're in right now is mainly texts of judgment, but there's also a kind of uh, uh, this, this circular movement where we have, we have a judgment text and then we have a hope of restoration. And then maybe the next outer circle, and some more talk of judgment, and then we're going to hear again of the hope. It's like, um, it's like seeing through a lens only at a, like a black piece of construction paper, but then little holes get poked and some of the light starts getting through. And so that's where we are this morning, a, a text that is meant to give Israel hope even in the midst of what is primarily a judgment, a courtroom sentencing, if you'd like, 
uh, on their, for their sin and for their idolatry, for failing to continue to be what they are, which is the people of Yahweh, a, a distinct people. Instead, they're imitating the sins and idolatry of the nations around them. And you might have to forgive me. It is that lovely time of year where uh, I become allergic to the air that I breathe, and so wrestling a bit this morning. And so if you see me sniffling or doing all that, I apologize for the distraction. And so our passage today is one of those passages, one of those notes of hope, one of those little holes getting poked in the construction paper and the light comes through. We're at the end of another cycle where God is revealing to His people through this guy named Ezekiel what He has called them to and why their refusal to hear that call has resulted in their exile. And so look at verse 39. O house of Israel, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Go serve every one of you as idols. That's really shocking. But I mean, keep reading. He says, go serve every one of you as idols now and hereafter if you will not listen to me. But my holy name you shall no more profane with your gifts and with your idols. This is a reference to the third commandment. Their misuse of God's name, right? taking the Lord's name in vain, mixing the worship of God with the worship of the nations, imitating the nations rather than being distinct from them is a mixture that cannot happen. And that in fact is worse, I mean you see it in the text, it's worse than just, I mean just take the idols and go away then if that's what you really want, is, is, is what God is saying here. When I lived in Edinburgh, uh, Scotland, I met a taxi cab driver, we got into an interesting conversation about what people in various cultures find offensive. He told me that before he had decided to take on the vocation, of transporting strangers to various places. He had been a bartender at a pub in the city. He said a tourist came in. I'm sad to say it was an American tourist. And this American tourist told him that he was unfamiliar with Scottish whiskey, knew nothing about it, but wanted to try it. And so he smiled and he said, well, I've got the ticket for you. This is one of my finest single malts, aged 20 years, dark amber in color, smooth flavor, satisfying finish. You've never had anything like it before. And the patron responded, sounds great. Can I get it in a Coke? And the man's eyes narrowed and he said, no, you may not. <laughs> for, the, for, for my friend in the taxi cab, there was a mixture then. <laughs> That was severely problematic. In fact, no mixture could improve what he was offering. Mixture, the only thing mixture could do was tarnish or corrupt. So it is that we learn of, of God here. That, that the mixture itself is the problem. They can't improve upon what God has given to them, the worship of Himself. There are things in the Christian life, there are things in the life of God's people that do mix well. Christian fellowship and singing go pretty well together. We've, 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 we've enjoyed that on Sunday mornings. We've enjoyed it on Wednesday nights as well. Uh, that's been a great gift. I, I want us to keep doing that at least three or four times a year. I think it's the best way to learn kind of new music rather than just throwing a new song at you Sunday morning randomly. It's like, what if we got together a couple of times and kind of tried it out first? Uh, preaching and the Lord's Supper go well together. The Word and Sacrament go well together. A man and a woman in marriage go well together. Such pairings bring out the glory of God's design rather than obscuring it, which is what idolatry does. In Ezekiel, we've discovered that one of the highest and greatest offenses of, uh, to the Almighty is to mix worship of Him with our idolatry. 
And so we see him presenting this choice to his people, right? Very much like Joshua calling on Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. God tells his people to, well, to use a modern expression, to fish or cut bait. If you want your idols, you may take them and go. But actually, it's better that you refuse me entirely than you try to make me share my almighty universe-fashioning glory with some pathetic little idol of yours. And some people might be surprised to hear a Presbyterian Reformed Calvinist preaching on the choice that we have, the choice that we have between God and idols. But if anyone ever tells you that Reformed folk do not believe we have a choice, they are either poorly taught or lying. All men have a choice. What we believe and preach is that apart from the help of God, we will always choose the wrong. God's people always face the temptation to mix the glory of God with some other idol's glory. And I'm not, of course, just talking about idols of stone or wood. It often shows up in our hearts as a desire to attach ourselves to something or to someone in order to gain a sense of significance or meaning. And so one of the most common ways that we sin is by trying to obtain glory for ourselves that God has not commanded us. If, if only I can attach myself, for example, to the right social movement, right? If I can be the activist for all the right causes, if people see me waving all the right flags, then I'll be worthy of acceptance, If I'm right about what's really going on behind the political curtains and I can shout, I told you so from the mountaintop when the time comes, then my life will have meant something. It's an idol of glory. It's an obsession with being on the right side of history, which is a pagan concept, by the way, uh, because you will not answer to historians on the last day. Your life is not measured by your fidelity to sociopolitical causes or parties or movements. Your life is measured by kingdom fruitfulness that will bless the next generation. Your life is measured by the steps you take to see the idols burn. So that, for instance, generational sin patterns that have followed your family for years and years might never again see the light of day. Every idol that you tear down teaches the next generation what idols do. They burn. Every besetting sin that you war against teaches the next generation that war against the world, the flesh, and the devil is actually worth it. Every sin of lust you avoid teaches the next generation to exalt purity. Every sin of anger you fight teaches the next generation that peacemakers are the sons of God. Every time you crucify your fear or your laziness or your self-pity, You teach the next generation that these are idols destined for destruction. And the heavenly glory ahead is so much sweeter. And so God sets this choice before His people. Go serve your idols if you will not listen to me, but my holy name you shall no more profane with your gifts, with your idols. Why does He do that? Why this choice? We find out in the next verse, verse 40. For on my holy mountain... The mountain height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them, he repeats it, shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them, 
There I will require your contributions, the choices of your gifts with all your sacred offerings. Earlier in chapter 20, it talked about their gifts and offerings to uh, their idols. And so this is being turned on its head. It's being reversed back in the correct direction. God says, it's me or your idols. Why? Because the almighty king of the universe is building a new Zion. Mountain language is, is what's happening here, which, which would have resonated in the hearts of every Israelite. Uh, we, we tend, uh, what, what modern evangelicalism has done with mountain language is made it about mountaintop experiences. That's not what we're talking about. Mountain language for God's people is it's where God lives. That's where we're returning to the place where God and man are together, right? And so, so in that sense, mountaintop or emotional experiences, something like that, might, might accompany those things. But what is most important is that our God hasn't left us, abandoned us. Going back to the mountain means uh, going back to being God's people. This will be a place where, let's look at uh, what he says, all Israel will serve him. He will require their offerings. He will accept them. This is God's promise of a future day where Israel would be, would be gathered together, reconstituted, and their primary identity as a people is that they are accepted by God. If you, if you can't see it, this is indeed a messianic prophecy of the time that is to come when God's people will be brought back together. Because is not acceptance. Here we're talking about divine acceptance. Okay, that's really good news because if you're honest with yourself, you know that acceptance is one of the most basic longings of the human heart. We really want acceptance from others. We want to be accepted especially by those we admire. An enormous temptation, in fact, I think confronts a lot of Christians, a lot of churches, the desire to be accepted by the wider culture. Right now, our wider culture is calling down commandments from Sinai about how you have to talk, how you have to think, what you are allowed to love and exalt as beautiful. And many of us are tempted by the prospect of a, of a, of a Christianity that will win us the admiration and respect of the world. When the scriptures tell us that friendship with God is enmity with the world. The promise of God is that His people will be gathered to Him and He will accept them. They will will hear the word of acceptance from Him. It's exactly what our judgment texts have lacked. It's exactly what they forfeited when they decided to choose their idols over the Lord. The language in verse 41 is important. Let's go there. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. Now, what I want you to notice right there, there's actually been a, a movement, not so subtle, but, but you still may have, you, you might have missed it. We were talking a moment ago about your gifts and your sacred offerings, Israel, and then as a pleasing aroma, that sacrifice language, I will accept you. If you missed it, what's happened is God has said, you're going to bring me your sacrifices. Oh, by the way, you are the sacrifice. I will accept you. Not simply your your gifts or what you bring, but, but you. It means that the people themselves will be the sacrifice given to God. 
This doesn't mean that they will participate in a human sacrifice ritual, so to speak. It, it, it means instead that they are the ones who are now given over. Their life belongs to God. This parallels pretty well with something Paul says in Romans chapter 12. Uh, perhaps many of you are already thinking of it. Paul says in Romans 12, uh, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, that we ourselves are the sacrifice. When we come bringing a sacrifice of praise as God's people, are we, uh, we, we are coming together as a body of believers and indeed, we are bringing ourselves to God. And isn't it interesting that Paul uses the word bodies? Not just present your souls, which you might have expected. Why? Probably because we are often tempted to give God our hearts and our souls rather than our bodies. God can have my heart, whatever that means. But He doesn't get to prohibit my gluttony. He doesn't get to tell me whether I am a man or a woman. He doesn't get to say anything about how I present myself to others. He doesn't get to give me whatever standards for modesty. Uh, Jesus can have my hair. Uh, excuse me, Jesus can have my heart. But everything else, my hair, my skin, my body is mine. And to that the Lord Almighty says, I get all or nothing. I will not share you with your idols. And so this is what the Christian faith is all about. This text right here, actually, it's a great little summary of what the Christian life looks like. Looks like this do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The Christian faith, in fact, is all about formation. Okay? And when things get deformed, they have to be reformed. That's the whole, whole roots of our, uh, of, of our tradition, in the Reformed tradition. Not being conformed, but being transformed. All of life is formation. All of life is formation. The music you listen to, the television you watch, the social media you scroll through, the stuff you read, all of it is forming you into something, shaping you. And so our God calls us to be transformed by renewal, renewal of our minds. It's why every Sunday we gather together and we confess our sins. And we hear again God's words of forgiveness and grace in the assurance of pardon. That is spiritual formation straight from the mouth of God. And God is in the business of clearing away our idols so that we can actually be formed by His words. Transformed by the renewal that comes through the Word and the Spirit. What else does God promise? Back to verse uh, 41 again. So God tells them, I will gather you out of the countries where you've been scattered. So this is the return to the land from exile. And I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations. God will manifest His holiness. Why? Well, because the idols are gone. When the idols are burned down, when, when the sight is cleared, so to speak, God makes it obvious that His people are accepted by Him. This thing that God will do is public. Did you notice that? It's really important. What God is doing is being done in the sight of the nations, the Gentiles, the outsiders, the unbelievers. They will see what God has done and what He is doing 
by setting apart his people and accepting them. And so this was actually in our call to worship this morning, right? When Yahweh restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. And what is the result? They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Because this is being done, this this restoration of God's people is being done in the sight of the nations. And so they, as a result, God's people are glad when maybe the rest of the world isn't. They are courageous, maybe when their circumstances say they should be fearful. They are hopeful, maybe when some feel that they should be cynical. They are burning down their idols while the world continues to chase after theirs. And they sing the songs of Zion that proclaim they are accepted and loved and forgiven by the blood of the Son of God. And all nations will more and more sit up and take notice of this peculiar people. You can see I'm, I'm, I'm blending here some, both some Old Testament and New Testament concepts. What is the final distinctive mark, though, of this great work of God? It's true for them and it's true for us in the New Covenant as well. This people, freed from their idolatry, worshiping God together, the God who has manifested His holiness in their midst, will absolutely hate and despise their sin. Verse 42 and then 43. You shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give to your fathers, and there you shall remember your ways. All your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you shall, you shall hate yourselves. You shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. That sounds pretty at odds with a lot of philosophy of our day, which teaches that, you know what, your main problem is that you don't like yourself very much. And if you could only be trained to like yourself, everything would be better. Now there is, I will say, before I address that, there is a kind of opposite error you can fall into, and that is uh, finding justification in your self-hatred. Right? I, think it's a, I think it's actually a particular temptation in, in Reformed churches. Uh, because we have a doctrine of total depravity, we, we can tend to almost be proud of how depraved we are. Right? Because while all those other people don't have a sense of their sin, I'm really proud that I know exactly how evil I am. I think it can be a temptation. We feel really spiritual when we call ourselves a wretch 11 times in one day, you know? And if I am particularly stupid, I can start to believe that my sinfulness or the sin patterns that I see in my life are greater than the power of God. Usually the way we disguise this is that we will use words like brokenness, right? I'm just so broken. I'm so broken. There's really no hope for me. This is my authentically broken spiritual journey of authentic brokenness. And and I'm just I'm just going to be broken forever and ever. Amen. Look, it is true that sin results in brokenness. But you can't repent of brokenness. And so if, if that's the terminology we start using for all of our sin problems, we're going to find out pretty quickly that we can dodge repentance, right? Because I'm not sinful, I'm just, I'm just broken. It becomes a shield that we use so we don't actually have to repent. And so to you, God might indeed be saying, 
Go serve your idols if you won't hear my voice. Right? Repentance is what we're called to do with our sin. It's what it, it's what, as a gift, God gives to His people a new awareness of, wow, this was, this was terrible. This was awful. It's like we just sang about ourselves in that Psalm 107. Uh, give thanks to the Lord about, about our, our wretchedness. Because God means to bring His people to His mountain where they will offer up sacrifices and He will accept them. And so this is what we ourselves do every time we gather together. The biblical language here is, is sacrifice of praise, that we gather together to praise our God. He accepts our offering, not because of us, but because of Jesus. And in light of that great, amazing kindness of our God, we are once again stunned that He would hear, that He would delight to hear the praises from sinners such as us. What sets this people apart is that they hate their sin. God is telling them, a day will come when you will look back on this day and loathe what you were. And this ends up being really good news. Christians are not a people who are incapable of hatred. We simply hate the right things. The psalmist in, I believe it's Psalm 103, actually asks God to help him hate evil with a perfect hatred. So yes, we hate the evil in our world that spills the blood of the unborn. We hate the violence that makes mothers afraid to let their children play outside. We hate the way someone we love will make foolish and destructive decisions. We hate and loathe our own sinfulness most of all because the God of the universe has made His holiness manifest in our midst. But the purpose of all of it is for God's own name. For His own name's sake, verse 44. You shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, declares the Lord God. In other words, forgiveness is coming. It's how I'm going to deal with you, my people. Because all of this is for His name. God means to make for the world a convincing proclamation that He can save even you. Because He starts with, well, frankly, the freaks around you. Right? God means to make a compelling case that He means to rescue sinners. So He starts with sinners who still have sin to confess, who still need to hear forgiveness, who still have to forgive each other. Because all of this is for His name. The story that God is writing is always moving towards His mountain, so to speak. The story that God is writing is always moving toward this this end game, this unity between God and His people. That's always where the story is going. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins that we have in His blood is always advancing. Now sometimes you will look at the tumult, at the chaos, at the pain in our world and say, well, you know, I I feel like it's going to get really bad before Jesus comes back. And when I look around, it seems really, really bad. So I guess Jesus is about to come back. And to that I would say, maybe. 
But the reality is, look, if brothers and sisters, if we can just be real honest with each other, it's gotten really, really bad about every hundred years or so. Okay? And every generation, or at least, I'm being generous, every other generation, has convinced themselves, this is the badness right here we've been reading about. Right? And so, I, I, you know, I, I'm, and so I'm not saying the, the, the Lord Jesus will come at a time that He has appointed, which is known to no one. Right? But I, I, w- I would be careful about, about presuming, because what's most distinct about that day is that nobody sees it coming. But I don't actually think that the story God is writing is moving toward destruction. God is always moving His people toward the mountain. Our God is conquering the whole world by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. It may be that our land, that our nation, will in days to come suffer great and catastrophic judgment. It hasn't come yet because apparently the sin of the Americans is not yet full. Some of you know the reference. So that means there's still time left to repent. That is what that means. There's still time left to repent. There's still time to recognize the idols in our life. There's still time to to cease the foolish game of trying to mix those things with the worship of God and demand that God be pleased with it. Because we know from what our God has said, it's better in those cases to just take your idols and go. But God has announced that His victory over sin and death and the devil has come. He has commanded all men to turn from their wickedness and also from the delusion that we own ourselves or our lives. And He actually calls us to obedience, by the way, in the midst of it. He, he can say things like, like in our text, and you will all serve Me. You will together be the living sacrifice I accept. Not because you make yourselves good enough, by the way, but because I have pronounced you clean. I have made you acceptable by the blood of My Son. You are made acceptable by faith in His name. And that's why he says, you will know that I am the Lord. I will make sure that you hate your sin. You will be welcomed into the fantastic peace, into the shalom of exalting good things, despising evil things, all of this for my name's sake. And all of this glad and holy joy will propel you forward with the confidence that this kingdom is indestructible. So, that means with with whatever time we have left, we go and we pray, we plant, we scatter seed, we build, such that your great-great-grandchildren will worship in spirit and truth on His holy mountain forever. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our Father, we ask that it would be so. We ask that You'd give us faith to believe as we wait. We ask that You would deliver us from any temptation to think that we can come to You with our idols tucked beneath, with our with our idols hidden.
but rather that in your mercy you would help us to mark those things out as, as, as things for repentance. And so we pray, Lord, just like we, we prayed before the sermon, I pray that you would send forth your Holy Spirit, that you would fill your people with your Spirit, that we might indeed be refreshed to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we might be fully equipped to love our neighbor as ourself, that you would grant this to us by the grace and mercy that we receive here, right here at your table. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.